listening to Love and Revolution Radio, where we cover the heart of change and changes of the heart, featuring stories of ordinary, extraordinary people waging struggle for love and revolution. When the pig farm showed up, it was sort of like, well, okay, we know how to deal with this. It's an ongoing part of the protection of the water, the expansion of this community of love. And I feel something very beautiful, something very strong and transformative coming out of Wisconsin. Keep us in your prayers. And we are still here, and we are still, our heart beats with and we're binding that sweetgrass braid of community together. So we say, no mines, no swines, no pipelines. On Love and Revolution Radio, we like to seek out real people and real stories about the heart of change. This week, we speak with Sandy Lyon of Northern Wisconsin about 30 years of nonviolent organizing that has asserted treaty rights, stopped mines, and driven out a U.S. naval base. We'll be asking her about the role of love, community, and the community radio station in creating a culture of creative, bold change. Stood before you with her hands on her hips. She said, I'll accept nothing, loving words from your lips. She said, Everything changes with conviction like this. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Love and Revolution Radio. I'm your host, Rivera Sun, recording out here in Taos, New Mexico, with Sherry Mitchell, your other co host on the line from Maine. How are you doing today, Sherry? I'm doing really well. It's very chilly here in the state of Maine today. Winter has finally arrived with a vengeance. And uh, we have a very special guest on the line with us today, Sandy Lyon. Sandy is up in northern Wisconsin, about as far north as you can get before running into a lake. Sandy is a lifelong activist for the water, the earth, treaty rights, uh, the future generations. She's also an incredible bread baker. She's a butterfly curator, a sweetgrass grower and braider, uh, a co-founder of Community Radio in the area, and I could go on and on about Sandy's accomplishments, which are many, and you will hear several more of the things she's been involved in in this in today's show. Welcome, Sandy. Hi, Sherry and Rivera. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, I think that uh, each one of us has a braid of my sweetgrass, as far as I can understand. I think, Sherry, you were given one by my friend Tom Hastings out in Portland. And Vera, I have sent many. And I think it is lovely that we have three women here making a conversational braid. Wonderful. And we're very, very thankful that you're with us today, Sandy. I've been reading some of your writings and we have so many things in common, it seems. Our love Mm -hmm. for the earth our desire to protect the earth for future generations. And I was wondering tell us a little bit about this idea of the earth being a rare and sacred thing and about our role in slowing the process of human extinction, reversing that process and moving toward a more humane, equitable, and harmonious future in alignment with the needs of our beautiful earth. Oh, what a task, huh? Uh, hmm. from the great to the small, our, our, uh, our path is laid out ahead of us to, um, try to do whatever we can. I think a lot of people don't understand yet, definitely, 
that, as Rivera said in her book, uh, Steam Drills, you know, it's not about keeping the mountains there beautiful. It's, it's about protecting the, the very lifeblood of existence, uh, the air, the water, the land. We have had, um, many multinational mining corporations want to come to Wisconsin to mine and take, uh, what they want from our homeland. And that was, has been a multi-decade resistance, is one word to call it, taking care of our waters. Because an elder, he used to say that, you know, take a dollar bill and put it over your nose and you can't breathe. You know, without air, we won't live more than just a little bit. Without water, maybe four days. Uh, it comes down to things like that, that people don't really realize until they are either cast into it by by tragedy or one thing or another, or they come to that understanding through learning and uh, forming community, realizing that these things need to be done, what can we do, and the challenges are multiple, the challenges are large, the challenges are small, how do we go about doing that? I think that we probably, each one of us in this uh, braid of uh, sisterhood in humanity, rise with those thoughts, go to bed with those thoughts. What can we do? What can I do? What can be done? And what I've found in my you know multi-decade time here is that we do whatever we can, each individual. We do whatever we can. And if we're real lucky with that, we, uh, you know, form community. That's one of the reasons why I was interested in community radio. The community radio played a significant role in the struggles. Will you tell us about the founding of the radio station and what the effect was on the struggles? And how how did you get involved in the radio station? This was back in 1980. And you got to think back in 1980. We had just had Ronald Reagan, um, actor, uh, put in as president, and the corporations really took off from there and grabbed everything that they could. Uh, back then, I was able to pull together some people of like-mindedness and bring them together here at my place, kind of talk it over. I had just been out to the survival gathering in the Black Hills and heard for the first time John Trudell and other amazing people brought back some tape and found and played this on a cassette player because that was the high tech that we had at the time and had had friends together and said okay now what can we do and we started getting together on a monthly basis here in very rural Wisconsin we we would have about 70 80 people once a month get together and we're talking about driving long distances um landline phones was high tech uh, we had ditto machines or carbon copies. We didn't have fast communication. And so the idea of reaching more people with a radio station sounded intriguing when they came and they asked me to be the coordinator of the volunteers. And that was fun for a person who enjoys uh, helping people come into their place in the puzzle of how do we protect this? What can we do? What can each one of us do? And I said, okay, I'll do it. But uh, if I do it, this speech by John Trudell is going to go on the air. 
and that's kind of how it started. It it was a fire that was put under me and 10,000 other people out there in the Black Hills, native, non, non-native uh, peoples, and we started growing community with community radio, and it began to work, and we were able to uh, use that tool when the Department of Energy came and wanted to put a high-level radioactive waste dump uh, in our backyard, and um, they didn't even bring anything like uh, speakers or microphones to the hearing, but we had a community radio station filled with community people, and we brought the sound system, and we broadcast it live, and people started coming and pouring in and pouring in and pouring in, so much so that one of the commissioners, one of the DOE commissioners, actually quit. He couldn't take it anymore. And we don't have a high-level radioactive waste dump here. I just want to really make sure our listeners understand and that this has been a 30, 40, many decades long series of resistances to a series of problems organized by uh, Native and non-Native people in the area. And that with every struggle, there's been a, a remarkable capacity of the the many people involved to deepen and broaden the culture of resistance steeped in nonviolence. And I think that's just, it's very important to like contextualize everything you're saying in this long time span of incredible work that's been being done. But this building of community through the community radio station and through other uh, methods and, and ways of gathering was seemed to be a very common theme throughout every, all the work that was being done. Could you speak a little bit more about uh, the role of building community in these resistance struggles? The resistance was built on love. And um, love stopped the mines and love stopped the uh, Project DLF. Love stopped a lot of these disastrous things. It was that first tiny little voice. I mean, it was 100,000-watt radio stations before online radio even thought of, even available. It was a way for us to come together to um, find out that there were others in the area that cared. And we learned how to bring the people together with uh, food, with sharing, uh, really traditional Anishinaabe ways that the Ojibwa, Chippewa people have the treaty right in northern Wisconsin. And in and, and those treaty rights, it, it means that the people, the tribal people back in um, 18, 1854, uh, they signed treaties to let the other people uh, live on the land, but they retained the right to hunt, fish, and gather. It was a very long, broken-hearted struggle, you know, going way back where Native children were taken away. And, and as my, went, and my, the one who taught me, Pipe Mustache, um, he said that they were to be de-Indianized, and that's what he called it. I was lucky enough, I guess, to say that I knew people that were born in wigwams. You know, I knew people and I participated in ceremonies a long time ago that were the traditional, are the traditional ceremonies of the people of the, of this place. And I think that being of place, realizing that we are of this place. Now here I'm sitting today, it's snowy, it's beautiful, it's, it's Wisconsin, it's ice. Um, we count on those 
seasons, the, 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 the gifts of those seasons, wild rice that grows upon the water, which is part of the, uh, Anishinaabe, um, origin story, the migration story when they traveled from the East Coast back to the place where the food grows upon the water. And, uh, Winona LaDuke, a friend of mine and a real leader amongst women, Native peoples, explains this so well and stands up for this, that this is our food source. This is why we live here. And as we begin to help other people understand the real necessity of protecting that, people came together in good heart. People came together in a circle. In a circle, when you come together, you lead with your heart. This is what we were told. You face one another. And you you begin to form that community. Now, this wild rice was threatened by the mines that came in. It was one of the the key reasons for resisting the several mines that were proposed. Will you speak about these struggles? At one point, uh, we we had grown the movement over quite a while, and uh, our numbers were large, and we actually were able to be successful in. Uh, banning what's called metallic sulfide mining. It's, uh, that there's the iron pyrite. It, call, it forms sulfuric acid when you dig it up. It's a, it's a byproduct, but it's a very, it kills the water for a hundred thousand years. And so instead of talking about things in the corporate terms like copper mining or iron mining or gold mining, we were talking about the back end, the thing that they were going to leave behind. And that's what began to move people like the legislators and such like that. And we would always bring the drum. We would always bring the people. We would always bring good heart. And um, that building and feeding and nourishing of love is what brought the people together. You know, and they were upset that this, this was about to happen to their territory, finding out then that there are other people, and then finding out that as our numbers could become larger, we always operated from a good heart place. Never was there any violence, ever. It wasn't even part of our thinking, and we were successful. You know what I think is really wonderful, Sandy, is Mm. this whole idea of forming community, whether it's community radio or engaging with people face-to-face, that when we take the time to get to know one another and we connect Mm -hmm. in that heart-based way, we realize that the things that are impacting us are impacting others as well. And the Mm -hmm. things that are impacting others that we don't see a corollary to in our own lives, we realize how we're all connected to those issues. And I think that the importance of that can't be stressed enough because we've really, in the West, moved into these individualized kind of lives that create so much more waste, so much more separation, so much more loneliness amongst people. And the reforming of community in a heart-based way is at the core of changing the structures, these underlying structures that keep us divided, that are really are critical to us being able to create the type of world that we all envision. I also wanted to touch on this piece where you talked about this importance of the seasons. We had a very, very warm fall here. In fact, it was almost 60 degrees here in the state of Maine on Christmas Day. There were some days that were so warm that the plants started to bloom again. And then when the cold comes, it kills them off again. 
And that's disruptive, like you said, to not, not only our food sources, but it's a threat to our traditional medicinal plants. And understanding our connectivity to all of these things, the individuals that live in our communities, but also the living ecosystems that surround us, how intertwined we are and deeply connected we are, and to build community and to build relationship with one another and with the the earth around us is part of this love revolution. It's part of reawakening our hearts to the truth of our connectivity and our interdependence on one another. And I think that that's really critical for people to understand that it's not just about there's force in numbers. It's really about understanding our connectivity. It's about understanding how interrelated and interwoven, like the braided sweetgrass that you talked about at the opening of the show, and how critical that is and how strong we become when we're braided together and when we're aware of how we're braided together in those ways. So true. I have found great knowledge, nourishment through um, some of the written words, and uh, thank you, Rivera, for falling into my life and your beautiful and wonderful work. There's a, another woman who is a writer, Potawatomi woman, and I don't know if you've read her book, but I, I strongly suggest it for everyone. And it's called Braiding Sweetgrass. And it's by Robin Wall Kimmerer. She's a uh, scientist and a, a, a native woman, a mother, and uh, really speaks so well about braiding all of these various elements together in a good way and living a good life. Braiding Sweetgrass is that book. We we learned how important the, the sense of place is, and it gave us the bloodstream of our life, our, our community, and gives us strength even during times when it's so difficult. I know Rivera, some of our, uh, some of the, some of the, some of the friends, uh, took a, took you around in the Pinocchies. I had had a rather rough year. I had lost a best friend, a dog, my cat, my sister, and my forest and many things that year leading up to your visit. So I wasn't able personally to be there, but that's the thing about having community is, is that if you can't participate personally, you do, you can count on that the rest of the family will be there. And we've all come to know one another, even the brand new ones, even the ones that just showed up that, that day. They're attracted to the circle because we're human beings. That's what we were, like John Trudell said, that at one point we were all tribal people, regardless of our background. You know, if we go all the way back to the, the, the San Bushmen, we were all tribal people at one point, and we lived a lifestyle that made sense as the population of the humans began to grow and sort of eat our way across the planet. Some of the uh, tribal ways began to become disrupted, and I think that that's really well described by Daniel Quinn, the writer of the book Ishmael and other books that he has written, all very important to to understand how each of us had a past in as a human as a human being, and when we come together and we understand our our need to drink water, clean water. We understand our need to be able to uh, eat and share with one another. We can come into and form community. 
With the latest mine struggle, the Takamite, the proposed Takamite iron ore mine, the locals used a, a pretty innovative strategy of setting up a camp um, on the actual proposed la- the land of the uh, the proposed mine site. Now, this had to do with treaty rights and with the uh, native folks getting to hunt and gather and fish and saying that the mine was actually in uh, violation of the treaties, which was a very interesting approach. Will you speak about the, the help camp and what it was and how it played a role in this struggle? There in the Pinocchies, which, as you saw, is a beautiful wellspring. It's, a, it's, it's the second oldest mountain range on Earth. It is over one and a half billion years old and was formed by when Lake Superior, way back when it was a volcano and rose up. And there are waters, artesian wells that come up like lifeblood through those beautiful cedar, spruce tree, birch tree, maple tree covered hills, mountains that have been worn down by time. And when we realized that we had to come together and really protect the place, and this is after several decades of already pushing back against the mining and against corporations, we came together and we, as Native peoples and non-Native peoples, built wigwams, which is the traditional form of living here in these North Woods through the wintertime. And that we did because we were hit, now you were just describing your really warm winter uh, two years ago, we had uh, what was called the polar vortex, and it was the it was the polar weather dropped down like a loop right over us, and we were at below 40 degrees, below zero, for days and weeks on end. We had four feet of snow, and we had people living in the wigwams throughout that time because 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 they kept the fires going, because we kept sharing, because we had people coming, and we did have people coming. And eventually, the local people, the ones who didn't have a lifelong connect, began to understand that lots of people, peoples are of this place. They know how to live through this stuff. And they actually, we had actually had people come to us, you know, and and stuff like that, who were definitely not of that, but they began to understand what we were saying, that if we ruin this and we allow these waters to be ruined, it's gone for everybody, and it's gone forever, and they began to realize the importance of it in their own lives. Was this the copper mine or the iron mine? So the company was after a low-grade form of iron. It's called Hackett. It has a lot more waste than product, which meant a real mess for the Pinocchio Hills. And there goes the mountain, and there goes the water, and there goes the with it. Uh, downstream from that, the Bad River Reservation, which is right on the shores of Lake Superior, where the Kakagan Sloughs are the best place in the world to grow wild rice. That's where it grows. Wild rice doesn't grow all over the planet. Wild rice only grows in a few very specific places around Lake Superior, and this one would have poisoned the very heart of it. This rice is so good that I know this is going to sound odd, but Martha Stewart actually came, you know, with her, her cooking program and actually tasted the rice and was involved in that. But it's why the people are there, 
and this poisoned water would have run down the hill into that rice and ruined the way of life. And now there's an Iowan pig farmer who wants to start a 26,000 or so pig farm, a CAFO, a uh, concentrated animal feedlot operation. And the same group of people, are they the same ones who are working on this struggle as well? Same group that came together, lived through those polar vortexes and lived in those wigwams and formed that community and helped people renew themselves to become to know themselves as human beings and as community. Uh, this is the Shawamigan Bay of Lake Superior, Madeline Island. It's a magical place, magical place. And it's one of the only spawning grounds for walleye and other fish uh, in Lake Superior. So it's a real source of life. And now those people are coming together to stop this, what's called a CAFO, but um, it's a it's a concentrated animal manure producing operation so to speak in other words all that waste would be ending up in lake superior and in the general area so people have said wait a minute we don't want this we're organic apple growers we're small organic farmers uh we have uh, artisan communities we don't want this and so now what they are actually doing is meeting in various households and discussing what's called community rights and more information about that can be found from Thomas Lindsay, uh, L-I-N-Z-E-Y. You can Google that, Thomas Lindsay. And where the people, we the people have the right to look after our places. When the Constitution was written, no, it was for white male landowners. So we're up against some real tricky stuff as far as the laws go. But I can tell you, as a person that's close to this uh, water-protecting community, that the threads of change have begun to weave together to really bind this community to this source of water. And there's an, there's an amazing understanding that's beginning to take place from the Native community, spread on out through the, the Niji, the Anishinaabe Niji, the friends of the people who have who were kind of first to come forward and now are, now are teaching others the specialness of uh, this place, the water, and the need to protect the place. For the coming generations, my partner who's passed on, Walt Brzezat, uh, spoke so beautifully about the need to protect the earth from the Native perspective of looking at the seven generations to come and what are their needs going to be? Because as he said, our elders were uh, looking after that when they signed those treaties and protected our right to hunt, fish, and gather and keep our lives whole and sustained and living in this kind of way. Now, Sandy, we've spoken a little, uh, quite a bit about the role of community and love. And, you know, I'm sure knowing Wisconsin and Scott Walker's regime and that it, this isn't just all uh, peace, love and rock and roll going on up here. Whenever we have a um, issue of environmental concern or an issue of health and safety concern that comes up in our local area, the counter force is always saying, yes, but what about jobs? We need jobs. And having traveled to this area of northern Wisconsin, I know they're not just like teeming with jobs. It's a concern, economic pressures. How did the movements in the various struggles um use both this this great love and this real pragmatic need to address the 
um, concerns of those who were in favor of, say, the mines or who are in favor of the CAFO now um, because they're looking forward to the jobs that they think they need. We found a really beautiful, sweet way. We realized that the trees, the maple trees, you know, and they've been tapped for for a very long time, you know, on the east on the east coast and in Maine and in that area and over here. We realized that a long time ago, the Anishinaabe people tapped those trees and made actual made, made the syrup. They also made sugar. They took it all way down and processed it like that. And that actually became not only a wonderful activity to, in in a in a good food source. But there was actually uh, income that could be made by trading that, you know, in the in the old days it was a matter of trade. And we began to look at those Pinocchio Hills and say, wait a minute, you know, that, and we had people come and they taught us all about mushrooms and various plants that are, are up there. It's not just magic and beautiful, but there's also amazing food sources that, that nobody really had been paying attention to when they were kind of running lockstep and standing with Scott Walker and, you know, all of that kind of stuff that you, that we've seen hit Wisconsin. And so we began, you know, starting from our little wigwams there on the hill and going out and tapping those trees and uh, led by the tribes. And now they have formed a federation where they really are um, basing the food sources, the native food sources, local food sources, local food economy. And that has um, something that has been taking place in the non-native community in Shawamigan Bay and Lake Superior area. Like I said, small organic farms and apple orchards and such like that. And we'll be back talking with Sandy Lyon after a short break for a station ID and your weekly dose of nonviolent history. Your life is your message. Your actions, your true belonging. Walk as if you were kissing the earth with your week on Love and Revolution Radio, we like to offer a short segment illuminating the long and impressive history of nonviolent struggle. This week happens to be the 104th anniversary of the Lawrence Textile Strike. On January 11th and 12th, 1912, women who were working in the textile factories of Lawrence, Massachusetts, walked out en masse over low wages and started the strike that would later become known as the Bread and Roses Strike. The phrase came about after a line in a speech that was given by Rose Schneiderman, in which she said, The worker must have bread, but she needs roses, too. The phrase would later be adapted into a poem by James Oppenheim, which included these lines. As we come marching, marching, in the beauty of the day, a million darkened kitchens, a thousand mill-lofts gray, are touched with all the radiance that a sudden sun discloses, for the people here are singing, bread and roses, bread and roses. 
the striking workers, mostly women, sent their children away to stay with supporters in New York, which not only helped them maintain the strike for the duration of the time that they were waging it, it also helped them raise awareness of their struggle with people all over the rest of the country. And on March 14, 1912, the strike concluded successfully with terms favorable to the workers. Know your nonviolent history. It might change your life. Turn it up when you're feeling small. Turn it up, get away from it all. Go within, go within, that's where it all begins. Turn it up all the way to ten. Our Turn featured music during our station ID break was by Jenny Bird. It's called Turn Up Your Heart and is featured on her Sage Song CD. Jenny is a wonderful musician. You can find her music at www.jennybird.com. And we are now back with Sandy Lyon talking about the use of maple syrup and maple sugaring as an alternative economy in the resistance to a mine. Sandy, tell us a little bit about what the ultimate effect was as this project went on. The people who had been thinking, oh, the only thing that can help us is if we dig up the hill and cut it down four miles long, a mile deep, and just, it was a hideous uh, proposal. They began to see that there's a way of life that if you keep the trees living and make the maple syrup and keep the waters healthy and make the wild rice and harvest in these kind of ways. And so what was a really bad idea brought forth and legalized by um, the and I'm just going to use the word Republicans because that's who 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 was doing it here in the state of Wisconsin, uh, sometimes in the dark of night, passing laws that would restrict life in all of its various forms so that these corporations could extract whatever they wanted to. Yes, we had rallies, we had signs, we took the drums, we did all of those things, and sometimes we had to drive through blizzards. It would literally take us 12 hours to drive down and back again through a blizzard uh, to even just go to a hearing, and and there was such magnificence that came from that, such beauty, such incredible uh, strength of spirit that was able to be seen. My, par- my, my other business partner, Paul Domain, from Indian Country TV, it took the cameras down there, and we broadcast the whole thing, and, and people, even if they couldn't make it, they could feel that spirit coming forth. And it really gave people hope, and it gave people not just kind of some warm, fuzzy sort of thing, but something that the that that people who hadn't seen life from that perspective began to see life from that perspective and actually joined us in making the maple syrup and seeing that we really do have a beautiful place here that can feed the people and all we have to do is to take care of this earth and take care of this place and take care of each other and so then when the when the pig farm showed up it was just sort of like well okay we know how to deal with this it's an ongoing part of the protection of the water the expansion of this community of love and i feel something very beautiful, something very strong and transformative coming out of Wisconsin. Keep us in your prayers. We've been to hell and back, and we are still here, 
and we are still, our heart beats with the and we're binding that sweet grass braid of community together. So we say no mines, no swines, no pipelines. We have pipelines from tar sands that are being proposed to go right through our wild rice beds, our waters. And I think that's why several years ago I kind of threw up my hands in frustration and sat down at my keyboard and let it flow out and, and said that uh, as humans we need to use less, which is not a useless idea. It Less plastic being produced and made and then ending up in the ocean, which is has the potential to literally drown and kill the plankton, which produces half of the oxygen in the uh, you know that w- that we all need as species. We all need all of the parts of this earth that uh, has evolved to bring us to this point. And uh, some people are still waking up, rubbing their eyes and, and blinking and going, "Oh, yeah, we need these things." So I'm kind of in a quandary right now because I have learned that through, you know, Black Lives Matter and such like that, the importance of having that cell phone there so that you can take a film of somebody attacking somebody, you can put it online, and it helps uh, bind a movement. And so I don't have a cell phone yet, (laughs) which is part of my quandary. Do I buy that? Do I do that? What do I do? They, They dig those rare earth minerals up from all over the place. I care about tribal peoples all around the earth. You know, I care about people. What do I do? And maybe that's just a, the modern human condition. How do we stay in touch? How do we get through this? Do we use the tools of the time? I know you didn't walk from Mexico on up to the Pinocchio Hill. We use some transport and such like that. So we have to kind of use some of those tools while at the same time continue to be the human animals, the human, the tribal people that we are that thing that brings us close into that circle, start the fire, light the fire of resistance, and uh, keep it, keep that love, keep that love flowing, keep that community pulled together. Feed the people. I feed the people. <laughs> You're kind of legendary for feeding the people around there. Actually, I heard lots of stories of of the movement, and especially you bringing bread to politicians, to uh, people coming in from out of state uh, to do hearings, uh, corporation board members, um, and that it's very disarming. You know, they they're coming expecting the locals to be. Uh, angry, pissed off, yelling, um, trying to shut down meetings. And instead, you show up with a loaf of bread and say, break bread with us and let's find some a piece that we can live with. Sheriff Tony was sent over in Iron County by the county board to, for, you know, to go kick those uh, guys out of there. They're not supposed to be there, blah, blah, blah. And Paul and I were, uh, okay, what do we do? And I had my bread and I says, okay, here, uh, a loaf of bread to every patrol car. Uh, you know, we'll just do it. And so, we, and there's a beautiful picture that ended up in the Milwaukee Journal, which was the sort of the largest newspaper in the state, of Sheriff Tony holding a loaf of bread. <laughs> yeah, I think that's so important because, I mean, one of the strategies that we mm-hmm. try to promote in the nonviolence world is to humanize one another and yes. realizing that we all have the same human needs, mm-hmm. such as the need to eat, um, the need to connect with one another. All of these types of things are are really key to creating functional, nonviolent movements, the creation of community, 
the treatment of one another as human beings rather than becoming confrontational with the police. Instead, you brought bread to the police. All of these types of things, I think, are often overlooked, but they really are part of the larger scheme of nonviolent action. And that's where the love comes in to Mm -hmm. the revolution, is when we treat each other the way that we would treat our kin, right? Here, we say, in Dilmabamuk, which is, you know, all of my relations Mm -hmm. uh, for my tribal community, and we need to be good kin. We need to treat one another the way that we would treat our family. And when we do that, when we make space, for that love to emerge, for that type of compassion and care to emerge, we actually change the entire dynamic. And I think that people often underestimate the power of that because when you start to care about someone because they've shown care toward you or because you understand empathically the plight that they're going through, you come to see how you're impacted by the same types of things that they're impacted by. When you start to develop that type of relationship and that caring emerges, you treat one another differently. You look out for one another. You want to stand with one another. And that's what's exciting about what you're doing in Wisconsin is that you're bringing all of those elements together just based on this common core of heart-based movement. And there was something you talked about earlier that really struck a chord with me because one of the things that I'm really big on is this idea of localizing our economies and establishing food sovereignty within our localized communities. And you bring two elements together when you're talking about the protection of those lands combined with demonstrating the ability to build an economy that is based on a harmonious relationship with the earth because we hear all the time that it's either the economy or the environment, (laughs) that we can't have an economy and a healthy environment at the same time, our healthy economy and a healthy environment at the same time. And so not only are you protecting the land there, but you're also demonstrating that we can have a healthy economy and we can have a healthy environment. We just have to be creative in the ways that we look to establish economies that are based on this type of harmonious relationship with the earth. So it's a great model for other people who are looking for simple ways that they can be a part of this progression toward a humane, equitable, and harmonious way of life. Here in my community, we call that Skijinaway Bumalsawag, and it's living your life in accordance to those ancient teachings. It's living your life in a harmonious relationship with all life. And I think that people get overwhelmed by some of these big problems when they come into their community. And what you guys have done is you've overcome these seemingly insurmountable obstacles um, and this opposition with these mining companies and the pig farm and all of the other things that are coming through there, the pipelines, which we're all dealing with all across the northern tier states, mm-hmm. and have addressed those things with a really humane reaction. And I think that that's an incredible model for other people. And that's why, Sandy Lyon, that we wanted to have you on Love and Revolution Radio, because <laughs> you're able to speak to those things and to demonstrate to others how you can do this without having it be some huge orchestration. It's just about being a human being and bringing your humanity 
and that heart-based, heart-centered um, way of being into whatever practice you're engaged in. That's really exciting. The lo- love is the revolution. It is. I, uh, I'll tell you one story. Well, I'll tell you, try to tell you a couple of stories, but we had to bring the people together. They really had to understand their connection to water. And, um, because we were trying to protect these waters and water is so important to the human animal and all others. And, you know, and as we looked at, when you say all my relations, you know, I mean, we look at it from the microbial level on up to the rest of the universe. We would have, we, we, we started doing, uh, water, gathering of water ceremony. This is not the traditional Anishinaabe women's water ceremony. I need to be clear about that. This is uh, something that Walter and I kind of came up with, and we we needed some way, some some mechanism for the people to understand the importance of water to them. And and this idea started uh, simply and spread. And it's something that people can do wherever they are, whether they're in San Francisco, they're in the desert, they're in you know Maine, they're in Florida. And to we asked the people when they were coming together, we used to hold these community gatherings and that which is important for people to be able to come together. It's like a little prairie dog town, you know, each one kind of sticks their head up and goes, Oh, hey, there's somebody else over there. And people humans love to form community, that's what we're about. And so we said, When you come to the gathering, bring uh bring a cup of water from somewhere. And people would come and they would bring their water and and then we had them pour that water into a common container and we actually had a microphone there so that because we always broadcast everything live and we said talk about your water talk about the water that you brought and people from all over the place were bringing water from all different kinds of places some from their very own wells i have a well here it's the most important thing to my my home here the butterflies wouldn't exist without its flowers plants trees myself and as the people would speak about the water, they were just transformed. And, and when they, and you could hear the water pouring into that, picked up on the microphone. And people were literally moved to tears and to joy and to form this community together. When the water was contaminated down in Milwaukee, one of the, one of our uh, people from one of the southern tribes said, hey, we're going to do a water ceremony down there. And they did it. And the people were talking there. So even in an urban setting, it worked. But I want to say that sometimes... In the building of community, in the forming of community, and in, in, in revolutionary actions such as love, there can be fragmentation. And I'm going to tell you one quick story of, from my, my partner, Walt Brissett, who's passed on. I call it the sunflower story. We were together, we'd gather together, you know, on a monthly basis to try to, this is when we were dealing with a metallic sulfide mine in Ladysmith area. The company was calling it a copper mine. And, People, all kinds of people, local farmers, librarians, college students, the whole nine yards, everybody was there in this gathering. And, 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 and one of the distinguished elder gentlemen was trying to get people to all go along with this particular Department of Natural Resources uh, thing. And he says, oh, we, we, we all have to go there. We all have to do this. We all have to do this, this, this. And there was another guy, he's a young guy. And he says, oh, you know, we have to have the resistance like this, and we have to occupy this, and we have to do that, and we have to do this. And, and, the, and there began to be a kind of a division back and forth and back and forth, and people were fragmenting and arguing, and Walter stood up. And he had such a peaceful, beautiful, wonderful countenance about him, and everybody loved Walter and respected Walter. And he stood up, and he held up his hand, and he held up his hands with his fingers splayed out. 
And he walked around that circle and he held up that hand like this and he said, it's like a sunflower. We've all come together, all the different petals, and they all are aiming to the center. They're all aiming to the center and that's who we are. That's how we are. We're all coming from our lives in our different places, all with each our different perspective and our various ways and talents, but they all are aiming to the same thing. And it brought an understanding to us all. And we have all learned from that moment onward. Um, and I, I, last time I told the sunflower story was up when we were having sort of a closure ceremony up on the Pinocchi Hills after we had driven the mining company away. And we were just on the beginning of our maple syruping season there and bringing together our cedar, our boughs, and all the different things that we were going to need for doing that. And... Um, it makes sense. And I was reading an article last night that Rivera sent out about sort of the falling apart of the Occupy movement and how that happened, how fragmented out like that. And the sunflower story, I believe, can help people understand that each and every one has a place and they're coming to it. They're coming to it of good heart and they're coming to that central understanding of the need to be to protect the water, protect the air, protect the land, and the future generations to come. And however we do that, whatever song that is us, whatever energy that is us, as we bring that into the circle and share it with others, then there's a chance that we, as a human species, can continue to be part of this earth without killing ourselves off by killing the oceans and the air and the water in all of the other species. We will be, we are, we are the naked ape. We are the fragile ones and we must realize that and come from a humble understanding. Humble meaning close to the ground. We are close to the ground and we need that earth and we need one another. And so love is the resistance. Thanks for doing the radio. <laughs> You're so welcome. We're really <laughs> glad to be doing it. Um, you know, when I was going up to the Pinocchi Hills, I'd been on this 30 city speaking and teaching and sharing knowledge tour. And, uh, but once I, once I got headed north up from Milwaukee, mm-hmm. I got to go into the mode of just sitting and listening and learning. And I knew it. I knew it going going north, that it was such a gift to go and hear these stories, to hear them told from multiple voices, um, mm-hmm. because that's another beautiful part of the sunflower that is very much um, woven into everyone up there that I encountered, of each person would tell the same story from their perspective, mm-hmm. and you would hear different nuances come out, different things that were important to that person, and you had to sit and listen for for hours, really, to really get a sense of the the whole picture, the whole tapestry. Um, And I knew that even as someone who has been studying and practicing nonviolence and nonviolent action and strategy for movements pretty intensely, that this is a whole other level of of thinking and and relating to this kind of work that I was having the the honor of encountering in the Pinocchi Hills. There was one story that Paul Demain told me that really made me understand that the depth of nonviolence that was being practiced. He was saying that during the the uh, mine mining struggle, 
Mm-hmm. The some of the local non-native uh, peoples who were interested in jobs at the mine um, were rather upset with some of the native peoples for being against the mine. So they decided to organize a boycott of the Bad River Reservation Casino, mm-hmm. and um, there was a a call to do a counter boycott of the the stores in the other town. And instead, the movement said, "No, no, no! What we're going to mm-hmm. do." Was we're going to go into those stores, and we're going to go and buy a packet of nails at the hardware store, or we're going to go buy a lottery ticket at the gas station, or we're going to go and buy something in their store, because this fight is not about their jobs. This fight is about the this this struggle is about the fact that they need their economy as well. We need our economy as well, and together we need to find a way to protect our water. That is not about ending each other's economies. And so I thought that was one of the best nonviolent stories. Instead of doing a counter boycott, they did a a procot or a proactive action <laughs> in which they showed up and said, "Hey, we know you're upset. We're upset too, but we want to make sure your families have bread on their table at night mm-hmm. at the end of this conflict." And yeah. to me that's really just such a deep story of nonviolence and a deep story of conflict resolution and uh, such a great teaching for me to encounter that story. It was built of trust and understanding and love and caring for one another. The Odevero family, five-generation um, organic uh, farm, which uh, would have been one of the closest families to where the uh, proposed mine would have been. Um, you know, they did. They opened the doors. They, 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 they gave us love. We gave them love. We, you know, traded goods. They took care of us. They made sure that we, you know, were able to survive those polar vortex winters like that and you know we kind of became legendary i guess out there on the hill and surviving that time like that i um want to draw back the uh lens here for a moment and say take a look at where, where what the area that we're talking about you look at it from like uh go 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 several miles out into space and look back at it this is the area where there is the fresh water and water is going to become so important and so we are sort of at the front lines of this, uh, protecting the water, because it, at some point, my, much of the earth is going to look towards our artesian wells, our fresh water here in the Lake Superior, Great Lakes area. And so what we are doing is we are, are living our lives and living our love, truth, to build that community, to protect that water for the coming generation's regardless of who they are. And we're asking people to know that and to help us protect that for the future. Everyone has their own special places. This one's pretty doggone special because of that water. And just know that we're doing everything that we can in a loving powerful, strong way. Love is not without strength. Love has a huge strength. And we're doing everything that we can and will continue to do so. And we invite others to help us. Like I said, keep an eye on Wisconsin. You're going to see an amazing transformation here as that love force, as John Schneider called it, binds more people together, expands that community, and helps teach the sunflower story on how everybody has a part in this, regardless of how large or small it might be. Anything done 
intentionally for the purpose of protecting is good and do it. It's a song, it's a poem, it's a dance, it's a reading a story, it's a sharing of a gift, it's handing a loaf of bread. Everyone is capable. And these are these are times that are trying us to tears sometimes. Go ahead and cry. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Do both. Do all things. And uh, come together and share it with others. It's uh it's the building of the uh, large human community to protect this earth for the coming generations. And thank you, uh, Sherry and Rivera, for doing what you're doing. Thank you. I want to make sure our listeners know that we're talking with Sandy Lyon, who is a lifelong activist of the heart, taking action for the water, the earth, treaty rights for the next generation and the seven generations yet to come. She's a bread baker and a butterfly curator, a sweetgrass grower and braider, and an amazing human being. Thank you so much, Sandy, for joining us on Love and Revolution. Keep it going. Keep Thank going. you, Sandy. Thank you. Miigwech. Thanks this week to our special guest, Sandy Lyon. If you'd like to learn more about the work that Sandy's involved in, you can go to honorearth.org. I would also like to thank my vibrant co-host, Rivera Sun. Our theme song, Love and Revolution, is by Diane Patterson. You can find more of her great music at www.dianepatterson.org. And I always have to thank you too, Sherry, for your wisdom and your presence on this show. If our listeners are looking to hear and read more of Sherry's wisdom, I highly recommend following her on Facebook on her Sacred Instructions page. And I'd also like to thank our production and editing advisor, David Getchy Sierra Lupe, for all the extra help he gave me this week. Love and Revolution Radio is a weekly radio program, and you can hear it in your local area. If you'd like your local radio station to broadcast it, just ask them. You can reach us via the Love and Revolution page on Rivera Sun's website, www.riverasun.com. And we are Love and Revolution Radio on Stitcher and iTunes. For Love and Revolution Radio, I'm Rivera Sun. Sandy Lyon reminded us of Walter Brissett's story of the sunflower, and that we all serve as petals connected to the whole. So, no matter how small or how large your actions seem, it's vital to everyone that you do your part, and share your gifts and strengths on behalf of life, love, and the earth, by the time we talk to you next week. What if you knew?